Well, we've had a wonderful day together, and I'm looking forward now to studying with you uh, the remainder of the Beatitudes, if we might. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, the teachings of Christ, the more you read them and the more you think about them, the more important and really the more deep they become. After he mentioned the, those that mourn, he said also, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The relation of this one with the first two Beatitudes that we mentioned this morning may also be illustrated by the case of the prodigal son. First, a case of misery, and then a realization of the present situation and a confession of, of misery and mistakes, and then finally, a feeling of unworthiness. You know, a meek person is not a coward. Sometimes a meek person is mistakenly thought to be scared. But a meek person is simply one who decides to forego and rather than be involved in a fight or an argument, he just foregoes. Jesus was a meek person. He was the kind of person who would not even break the, uh, the bruised reed. And you can read about that in Isaiah 42 and verse 3. A reed, you know, that is bruised along the riverbank. It just gets so weak there. There'll be a little dark spot up here on the side of that reed and then any kind of a disturbance and it'll just fall over. But Jesus was meek to the point that even a bruised reed, he would not break. Was he scared? Oh no. Just look at the way he treated those who were the money changers in the father's house. Look at the way he received and the way he dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes, and the many times that he openly called them vipers or snakes and told them that they were hypocrites. No, he wasn't scared, but he was meek. Well, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, uh, Jesus, as I said, was gentle, and yet he was truthful in pointing out sin and the way of righteousness to men. You know, I've come to realize that in preaching the gospel, it is not always best, wise, nor is it always necessary to just tromp all over sin with hobnail boots. Sometimes the way to handle it is a gentle way. And let me give you an example. In the eighth chapter of the book of John is maybe my favorite example of the personality of our Lord. Jesus was teaching in the temple, as I recall. He was teaching at least. And some folks brought a woman to him. Now, who do you suppose this was? You remember I mentioned the scribes and the Pharisees this morning and how they were his bitter enemies? Well, they're still at it. In this case, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. And they set her down in the very midst of all of these people. And they told Jesus... This woman has been taken in adultery in the very act. Now the law says we should stone her, but what sayest thou? You see, they hoped that Jesus would somehow weaken and misstate or misapply the law of Moses. And in so doing, they might have some excuse to mistreat him. 
You know what Jesus did? And if you've not studied this, you may not be aware of it. Jesus applied the law correctly. He just stooped down and began to write in the dust of the earth. And these scribes and Pharisees thought they had him on the horns of a dilemma, so to speak. And they were really pressing him. They thought, we've got him this time. And finally, Jesus looked up and said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. That's what the law said to do. If you had somebody that was guilty of adultery, by the way, that sin was a capital offense. They stoned people for, to death, whether it be a man or a woman in those days. Now here was a woman who had been taken in the very act, and that tells you a whole lot more than you may want to know. Because if they caught a woman in the very act, they caught a man, didn't they? Obviously they did. They couldn't have caught the woman in the act without catching the man in the act. Wonder where he was. They didn't seem to have him. Now they could have if they caught the woman. How did the man get away? I really don't know for sure the answer. But I wouldn't be surprised if my own father might not have been correct in supposing, and it is supposition, that perhaps the name of the man who was caught was maybe the name of one of those men that was standing in the audience that day. Could very well have been. And could it be that when Jesus was writing in the dust of the earth that he was writing maybe the names of some of the men who had also been guilty of that sin? Don't know, but could have been. And when he looked up at them again, they all had left. They began to sidle out of there, the Bible says, from the oldest to the youngest. Until finally there was nobody left. Now here's what you may or may not know. Jesus looked at that woman and said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Does no man, uh, does no man accuse thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And he said, Neither do I accuse or condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. You know what the law prescribed? If you caught somebody in a sin such as adultery, which was a capital offense, and the law prescribed stoning for sin in that case, but you had to have at least two witnesses, two people who were eyewitnesses of that sin, two or three. And if those, if those two or three people were willing to, uh, to testify before the court, before the, the, before, before the Sanhedrin, that this woman was guilty of that, then she would be condemned to death. But the people to throw the first stone were the people who testified against her. That's the way the law prescribed. But guess what happened? If everybody walked out and nobody was there, you know what the law prescribed? The whole thing was thrown out. And no penalty was prescribed. That's what the law said. And so when these people left due to their own guilty conscience, for whatever reason, the law prescribed that this woman be set free. They brought her there hoping to catch Jesus in a trap. And Jesus prescribed and followed the law to the letter. And she was turned loose. You see how gentle he was in teaching this lesson? Here are these scribes and Pharisees again, 
hoping to catch him unaware, hoping maybe to find some, art, some argument that they could pin on him and maybe even put him to death because that's what they wanted to do and eventually did get it done. That's what this was all about. Well, he was truthful. He pointed out sin. He didn't deny that she was guilty and she didn't deny that she was guilty. There was no way to deny it because they caught her in the very act. But their hypocrisy in not, in not bringing the man forward was very obvious. And, and the Lord certainly recognized that. But then he said in verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for or because they shall be filled. You know, uh, this was a long time ago before I started preaching, and I've been preaching over 50 years now, but I remember Clovis Cook came to California and held a meeting for the church at Lodi or Stockton, I forget which one. And while he was there, uh, Clovis, of course, was my brother-in-law, being married to my oldest half-sister. While he was there, my brother Howard and I decided that we would take Clovis fishing. He was a big fisherman. And so we got up early one morning and drove him to a place called Bear Valley. And uh, it, was, it was chilly. In fact, there was a pretty good, pretty good snow on the ground. It was probably maybe three feet deep. And we walked early that morning. It was, had been cold through the night and had frozen the snow so we could walk on the top of it. We walked probably a mile or more down to the stream and we fished for a while. We never thought about taking anything to eat with us because we didn't expect to be there very long. We fished for a while, and I don't remember whether we caught anything or not. I probably would remember it if we had caught much. But at any rate, we started out in the afternoon, and by this time, the sun was on the snow. And, uh, <laughs> well, they were, everybody was struggling to get out of there. We were walking out at every step. We would sink hip deep in the snow, climbing a steep hill. It was unbelievable. We were hours getting out of there. I remember there was a couple of fellas came by and they were pulling a brand new aluminum canoe. They were coming in, we were going out. They stopped us and said, uh, would you fellas like to have a new canoe? And my brother said, not if we have to pull it out of here, we don't. And so I don't know what they ever did or what happened to the canoe, but we struggled on out. And finally, when we were getting close to the top of the hill, when we got close to the top of the hill, Clovis said, listen, boys, I've not said anything about it before now, but I figured we might be a little hungry and we were just absolutely starved by then. He said, I brought us each a large economy-sized Snickers candy bar. It's waiting for us in the car. Were we anxious to get to the car? You can't believe how anxious we were to get to the car. We got up there and sat down, and I tied into that candy bar, and I never was much of a candy eater. Still am not. But I don't know that I've ever tasted anything that tasted that good. It was just beyond wonderful. And I said, fellas, if you'll stop on the way down, I'll buy a case of these things for us if they're this good. 
But before we got to where they sold candy bars, we were all so busy fighting cramps in our legs that we forgot all about the candy bars. But at any rate, the idea was, blessed are they that thirst, hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, a man who is really hungry, like we were that day, we would have eaten almost anything, I think. It would have just probably not been... There's a lot of things I don't like, but I think I would have eaten whatever I could have found that day. I remember reading a true story about some men who were in a prisoner of war camp during World War II. They had been there so long in Germany. They had been there so long they were virtually dead from starvation, just skin and bones. They were served a, a meager meal of thin watery soup once a day and forced to work hard, long hours on that. One of the men said that one day, as they were sitting there around a campfire, shivering and cold and starving, they saw a rat make its way under the fence and start scurrying across the, the grounds. And he said, we caught that rat, we fell on it with a vigor, and it didn't last any time, we ate everything. That's what hunger and thirst will do for you. You'll eat anything. Now the reason Jesus pronounced this hunger and blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness is because he knew that people that are really hungry, really that are, that are really thirsty, they will find a way if possible to satisfy that, hungry, uh, that hunger and that thirst because they can't think of anything else. That's all they can imagine of being satisfied. And you know, when a, when a person feels compulsion, for the truth of God's word. I'll tell you what, you know, Frank and I are getting ready to go to the Philippines. You can see sometimes an old man sitting on the front steps of his little shack with a dirt floor, a little bamboo house, no glass in the windows, sometimes not even a door except a curtain. And maybe he's buried a couple or three of his children with diseases that over here we just get a vaccination and forget about it. It's all over. But over there, no medicine is available sometimes. And those people die from that. You tell one of those old men that you're there to tell him about a place called heaven. And in this place called heaven, nobody will ever be sick again. Nobody will ever die again. And everything will be wonderful. There will never be another tear shed. Never a sad moment. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what. You got somebody that's willing to listen. He's hungering and thirsting after the truth. And you can baptize that man. He's not willing to argue. He wants to know what the book says. And he'll obey the word of God. Well, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness... Jesus said, for they shall be filled. Then he said in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You know, I think I really didn't quite understand this until maybe the last year or two. But let me tell you something about being merciful. If you carry a grudge, if you have ever carried a grudge, you know what I'm going to tell you is the gospel truth. And that is that the person who carries the grudge 
is hurting a whole lot worse than the person that he has the grudge against. Oh, yes. You're all upset. You just can't think of anything else but maybe getting even with that person who you feel has wronged you in some way. But the person that you're holding the grudge against, he may not even know it. He's as happy as a, as a cat in a tree. He just goes on blithely unaware of any of the feelings that you have. You know what you need to do? Turn it loose. Even if he never knows you held that grudge, turn it loose. It'll be better for you. You'll feel better. You'll be better for it. And I think this is one of the reasons Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. My wife's grandfather, an old Arkansasier, I don't know how many times he told me, he said, you know, when I'm standing before the Lord in judgment, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I heard that so many times, and that's true with all of us. I'd a whole lot rather have mercy on that day, wouldn't you? than justice, because mercy will get me more than what I've got coming, I'll guarantee you. Mer blessed are the, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are forgiving are relieved of the heavy burden and thus are in a better position to save not only other souls, but their own as well. And those who have compassion upon the lost are the ones who will take the gospel to them. That's the reason why even those who cannot or do not have the opportunity to go to the places that preachers go sometimes, they love the lost, they're merciful toward the lost, and they're willing to support those who will go and who can go so that the lost can receive the gospel and be saved. And then he said in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. You know, I mentioned this morning that the more you study the sermons or teachings of Christ, the more you realize every time you're likely to learn something you didn't know before. This is one example for me. I got to thinking about the pure in heart. Now, obviously, a person who is a Christian and who wants to live a good life has to be careful that his or her heart is pure. Well, how do you accomplish that? You ever thought about that? Well, one of the th ways that you do is be careful what you put in your heart. Now, I'm going to tell you what. There's just a whole lot of places that you can go in this world that you'd be better off not going because you will see and hear things that will challenge the purity of your heart. There's a lot of things you can see on television or perhaps in a movie that you'd really be better off not seeing and hearing. You put, you're putting some things in your heart that's not going to do you any good. And it may very well do you harm. Listen to what Solomon said. In Proverbs 4 and verse 23, he said, get this, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. You think about that a while. Solomon also said, 
in Proverbs uh, 23 and 7. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now think about this. If you cloud and clutter your heart with a lot of things that are not good, until your heart becomes impure, guess what that does? That changes who you are. You're not the same person. You have polluted your heart. You've got things in there you didn't have to put in there that maybe you took, put in there from watching things you shouldn't have watched or from maybe reading things you shouldn't have read or for being privy to conversations you should never have had. And that changes who you are. Your heart is no longer pure. And if that's the case, since as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If your heart is no longer pure, you aren't either. See how important it is? People wonder sometimes why God's people don't do the things that the world does. And don't go to the places the world goes. Don't talk like the world talks. Well, one of the reasons is not only because it's wrong, but we like to be as pure as possible because it's a lot easier to live a godly life if the heart that you have is pure. In Proverbs 4 and verse 23, I'm sorry, in, Ro in Romans 12, and, and uh, let me just skip that. I, I don't want to go into that area. I don't have time. In verse 8 he said, or verse 9 rather he said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the children of God. It's too bad, isn't it, that sometimes God's people forget all about our responsibility to be peacemakers. And we sometimes act like that we're anything but that. Sometimes we mistreat each other. We sometimes say unkind things about each other or to each other. And uh, we're supposed to be peacemakers. Christians are to be peaceable themselves. Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 18, if it be possible, now that does leave open the door, that it may not always be possible. I mean, I remember <laughs> Linwood used to say, there are some folks you can't please with a pleasing machine. That may be true. If it be possible, he said, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Not only members of the church, but everybody. Try to get along in the world. It's better for you. It'll help you live a more godly life if you can just always be among the peacemakers. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know, not only, and I want to just quickly say this, I, we not only are required to be peaceable ourselves, but the Bible indicates we are to promote peace. Now let me give you an idea of what I understand this to mean. I'm not a member of this congregation, so I don't know everybody here intimately like the rest of you do, although some of you I've known all of my life. But if you're in a congregation for a period of time, you soon learn, <laughs> you soon learn what buttons everybody has. And if you want to have peace, you can push those peaceable buttons. If you want to stir things up, you know what buttons to push to get a fight. That's certainly true with the man and his wife. And uh, sometimes that's too bad that we do things like that, that we cause 
problems in the church, at home, on the, in the work spot, in the workplace. Sometimes we're anything but peaceable, but we're supposed to be known for our being peaceable. In Colossians 4 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, Let your speech be always with grace, or kindness, if you will, seasoned with salt, for Perhaps also reference is made here to the effects of salt. He said, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. There's a way that you can answer me that will make me happy. And there's a way you can answer me that will make me angry. And that kind of is up to you. If you know how to push my buttons and you push the one that is likely to hurt my feelings or make me angry... Do not be surprised if my response to you is not what you would like to have. That's easy for us to figure out. Now, sometimes, as I said, I remember my dad used to say some folks wear their feelings on their elbows and they're slighted if you bump them and offended if you don't. That's probably true. But by and large, if we want to make an effort to get along, we can. We can, we can get along and we can have peace and we can work together. And that doesn't mean that I always get my way. In fact, I'm not going to always get my way if I'm really a true peacemaker. And I'm not talking about, you know, being willing to compromise on matters of doctrine, on matters of truth. I know we've got to stand up for the doctrine of the church, for the communion and the singing. We don't have anywhere to go on that. But on matters of liberty on whether we paint the building white or gray, whether we have a new songbook or last year's songbook, we can get along. We can get along. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then in verse 10, he said, uh, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Why is that the case? Well, I think this is at least one reason, and there's probably more in this than I'm able to see. But I know this, whatever costs us the most is the most important and the most dear to us. That's, 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 what, it, that's what it's all about. I think uh, it was Jesus who said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, so true. If you've got a pot of money buried somewhere, you're going to think about that pot of money just every little bit. No, I don't have a pot of money buried. But whatever you're interested in, whatever your heart is, is, is really dedicated to, you're going to think about that a lot. I remember Jerry Cutter told me years ago when we were traveling together in the Philippines and in Malaysia, and in Africa, he said, you know, the older I get, the more I love the word of God. And he said, I go to bed at night thinking about something in the word of God. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm still thinking about that same thing. Well, if you really love the Bible, that's the way you are. You just think about it. You read it and you consider it and you ponder it. You uh, meditate on it and you're going to learn a whole lot in doing that. But those who have given up family, who have given up homes, who have given up jobs or other things for the cause of Christ, they really appreciate that. I remember uh, about the time I started preaching, 
I was uh, with my uh, dad in a, at a meeting in Kansas City. Don't remember what the place was. I think there was only one church there then. I guess I'm dating myself pretty bad. But at any rate, during that meeting, there was a young man who came forward to be baptized. And that young man was not only Jewish by nationality, but Jewish religiously. Somehow, he had learned the truth. And during that meeting, he stepped out all alone and obeyed the gospel. After he was baptized, he told the church that when he told his family what he was going to do, they publicly and officially disowned him, cut him out of their wills, promised never to have anything more to do with him. I've always wondered what became of him after we left. I don't know whether he remained faithful or not. But I can tell you one thing. Anybody that's willing to give up their home and their family, I mean, he had nowhere to live. But he was dedicated to going to heaven. When you're that, when you're that uptight over something, when you're that uh, endeared to something, well, you're persecuted. And you know what, you know what persecuted is all about. They're willing to give everything they have. And Jesus gave all he had. And then finally, in verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Have you ever been reviled? I want to tell you something. If you have, you remember it. There's nothing any more disturbing, nothing that will bring you down to the ground any quicker than for somebody to treat you just like you are, worse than the dust of the earth. They have a way of looking at you and talking to you that makes you feel utterly and completely worthless. Jesus said, blessed are they who are reviled. You know, the church was made a scapegoat in the early days of the Roman Empire. It was made a scapegoat for all the ills of the Roman Empire from fires to famines. Nero tried to blame the church for the burning of Rome, of all things. Ridiculous. Church people weren't going to burn down a city, but they got the blame for it. You know why? Because they were hated. They were reviled. And Jesus said, blessed are the reviled. Christians today are sometimes reviled. And when you are, just understand this. You're in wonderful company of the many old soldiers of antiquity who died for the cause of Christ. Did you know that of the 12 apostles, all of those grand old men who preached the gospel so well and so eloquently and so truthfully According to history, only John escaped a violent death. And history says they buried him or burned him, tried to burn him in a cauldron of, of hot boiling oil, but he was miraculously saved. Whether that's true, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but that's what history says. And it was John, you know, that was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. I mean, nobody out there but him. And I remember reading in J.W. McGarvey's, some of his writings, he had gone to the Isle of Patmos. He told how many miles off the coast of Ephesus it was. 
It, it is believed that John was an elder in the church at Ephesus, had been there for a long time. And, and McGarvey said on a clear day, from the top of, of that rock of Patmos, that's, it's just kind of a big old rock, I guess, that sticks up out of the sea. He said, from the top of that rock, you can on a clear day see the city of Ephesus. Now, I've been to Ephesus, but I don't know if I could ever see Patmos or not. I wish I could have. But you talk about a feeling of loneliness. And on the Lord's day, John said he was in the spirit. And it was on apparently on that rock. And while he was in the spirit, that he received the inspiration to write what we know as Revelation. The Lord used him in a wonderful way. God's blessings are pronounced on all of those who are his. Well, I hope I've said some things today about these Beatitudes. I hope I can have made you realize that even when it may seem like that all is dark for you, the Lord is with you. He never does really let you go. Now, just because times are tough doesn't mean that the Lord has forsaken you. He let all those apostles suffer. As I said, apparently only John escaped a violent death. Paul apparently was beheaded. Others were killed in horrific ways. Women had their children snatched out of their bosoms and fed to wild animals right in front of them and in the hearing of them. And all they would have had to do is say, I renounce Jesus Christ, and the child would have been given back. But thousands died as martyrs because they wouldn't do that. It'll all be worth it someday. Soldiers receive a reward after the battle is over. And we're looking toward that great day of reunion and a time of going home. Well, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, now's a good time to change that. Obey the gospel. Hear the gospel. Believe it. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Christ. And be baptized for the remission of sins. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.